A farmer in southern Alabama was on his way to town in a wagon and was hit broadside by a truck. One mule was knocked 35 feet off into a field and the other was knocked 20 feet off into a ditch. The farmer got up and walked away saying he was okay. Later he sued the truck driver. At the trial, the lawyer said, how is it that you are suing my client, seeing at the scene you said you were okay? The farmer said there were extenuating circumstances. As I lay there on the roadside by my wrecked wagon, the sheriff walked over to one of my mules and said, this mule has a broken leg. He'll never live. Then he pulled out a pistol and shot him. He did the same to the second mule. Then he walked over to me and said, how are you doing? I said, Sheriff, I've never felt better. <laughs> Doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have an outline, and by the way, the provision of an outline is almost a miracle. They happened to print last week's uh, outline for this week, and so we got here this morning was less than 16 instead of less than 17, and almost miraculously, they got these printed and distributed for this morning. You notice the title is Leftovers and Prayer. Now, when you see that, you may think that it's talking about uh, leftovers from Thanksgiving and prayers over the meal. Now, obviously, that's not it. The leftovers are from last Sunday, where we were talking about a wife's responsibility to a husband, a husband to the wife, children to parents, the father to the children, slaves to masters, and masters to slaves. And uh, there are a couple of questions that have arisen that we need to deal with in a matter of leftovers. And the first deals with wives and husbands. It very clearly says that wives are to be submissive to their husbands. That's stated again, of course, in Ephesians chapter 5 and in 1 Peter chapter 3. There is no doubt about that, that the husband is the head of the house. Now that leads to the question, does the wife have anything to say in the marriage? Does uh, the husband listen to his wife? And, of course, the obvious answer is yes, and for a number of reasons. For one, it's the institution of marriage in Genesis 2.24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. And the word leave is very strong. It almost has the idea of abandon. It's not that strong. But it shall leave his father and mother, meaning he sets up a whole new family institution. And he's joined to his wife. It means he's glued to his wife. When you get married, you're stuck. So he's glued to his wife, and they too shall become one, ekath in the Hebrew. Now I'm making a mention of that ekath because it's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 is the doctrinal statement for all of Judaism. In every synagogue all around the world, on every Sabbath, they repeat this saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, Ekath. Now I'm making a point out of that because the two, husband and wife, become one, Ekath. You have two persons. And so likewise in Deuteronomy 6.4, when it says the Lord your God is one, you have provision for, or at least room for, three persons in the Godhead. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one, Ekath. But they're one. If they're one, obviously, the husband listens to the wife. And the wife has, has something to say about 
about the marriage, what goes on. Furthermore, when we discussed the husband loving the wife, we said it includes at least two things. One, he seeks the well-being of his wife. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it also means you put a high value on to, to, to esteem a person. 1 John 2.15, love not the world. Don't put esteem on the world. Don't put a priority on the world. Do not love the world, but you are to love your wives. Put a high value on your wife, which, of course, means you listen to what she has to say. Frankly, when my wife and I discussed things, we discussed everything, and uh, we agree, basically. I would say 99% of the time we agree. But we have the agreement <laughs> that when we disagree, I have the final say. We have, a, by the way, there's an addendum to that. Uh, I have the final say, but if it turns out to be wrong, we have the agreement that she doesn't say, I told you so. <laughs> but of course, the, the, the wife has a great deal to say, and the husband wisely listens to his wife. But ultimately, as Truman said, the buck stops here. You've got to make that decision. That's the first leftover. The second is much more difficult, and that's the matter of slavery. Look at verse 13, uh, verse 18, I'm sorry. First, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. One verse, wives. Verse 19, one verse, husbands. Verse 20, children. One verse for children. Verse 21, one verse for fathers. Slaves, verse 22, 23, 24, 25, the whole rest of the chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1, one verse for masters. It indicates there's a great deal of emphasis on slaves. And we said last Sunday that that probably was due to two reasons. One is the number of slaves that were in existence in the Roman Empire. It is estimated that almost half of the Roman population was comprised of slaves. And the second is Onesimus, whom, whom we will discuss next Sunday. A runaway slave that showed up at Colossae. And here he shows up, this runaway slave. What do we do with him? It's still, he's still a slave. There's a great deal of emphasis on slaves. Now, the interesting thing is, you do not find slavery condemned anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere. From the very beginning to the ending, slavery is not condemned. What do we do about that today? By the way, the fact that slavery was not condemned was a fact not lost on southern slave owners before the Civil War and even afterwards. What do you do with that? Well, the thesis I'm going to develop, and I trust it'll make sense, the thesis I'm going to develop revolves around two things. One, an institution, and number two, an abuse of that institution. Let me start with an illustration, then we'll get back to slavery. Marriage is an institution, and in that institution, wives are to be in submission to the husband. That's the institution. Now, that has been terribly abused, even among some Christian husbands who, who, who have become veritable dictators in their homes. They're dictators. Their wife has become nothing more than a carpet on which he walks. One time, my wife and I were in South America, and we were in a clearing in a jungle. 
And out of uh, this, to our right, out of the jungle, comes this woman carrying a heavy load of sugar cane. Now, sugar cane is very heavy, and she was loaded down with that. And lo and behold, about 30 feet behind her comes her husband. You know what he was carrying? His machete. That's all. I have seen with my own eyes in Africa a man taking a large bundle of sticks, heavy, and lifting them up and putting on his wife's back. Helping her. He was very helpful. He put it on his back and arranged it a bit, then walked along beside her while she carried the load. Now, there is an abuse of husbands being the head of the home. Does that mean you throw out marriage? Of course not. You don't throw out marriage because there's an abuse. So likewise, there is slavery, and it's never condemned. Does that mean that there's no abuse? Of course, slaves were horribly abused. But does that mean you throw out the institution? Let me defend the institution of slavery just a bit. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'd like to begin reading at verse 12. We're going to read a number of verses here. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you seven, six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, and it shall come, come, to, come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household. Since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And also you shall do likewise to your maid servant. Now, isn't that interesting? If slavery were so terrible that by, by itself it's wrong, why would you have a man be a slave or a woman be a slave for the rest of her life? And that's approved in the scriptures. If slavery intrinsically is wrong, you'd never have this. Furthermore, interestingly, Christians are called slaves, douloi, slaves. Now, if slaves is something that is intrinsically evil, why would we be called slaves? You never have Christian women called prostitutes for Christ or men calling pickpockets for Christ. It's something that is not looked upon as being necessarily evil. And that's why in Colossians 3, slaves, obey your, obey your masters. Uh, I'm making a big point out of this because there is a doctrine that has been taught the last 10, 15 years called trajectory ethics. Trajectory ethics teaches that in the Bible, slavery is not, not condemned. But we've gone beyond that. In all civilized cultures, why, slavery is prohibited. 
So we have a trajectory of ethics that goes beyond the Bible. We are above the Bible today. Interestingly, there was a Dallas Seminary graduate who wrote on this. When I read his book, I thought, oh, oh, here we go. He's going to say that since homosexuality is accepted in our culture, then we should accept homosexuality. But he doesn't. He does accept trajectory uh, ethics as it relates to slavery, but not homosexuality. And his argument is this. Uh, slavery is never condemned as wrong, whereas homosexuality is from the beginning of the Bible to the end is seen to be sin. Since it's seen to be sin, we should not accept that as being part of the trajectory of ethics. Interestingly, the problem is the abuse of slavery. Um, that's why you have Colossians 4.1. Take a look at Colossians 4.1. Let's look at it very quickly, as we saw last Sunday. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 4.1. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, why does he say that? Because you could abuse a slave. Turn, if you will, now to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And look at verse 9. And masters, do the same thing. In other words, be fair and correct. Do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. That indicates the abuse of slavery. Now, interesting, I'd like to have you turn to one other, one other passage, if you would. 1 Timothy 1.8. 1 Timothy 1.8 which again implies, 1 Timothy 1.8, which again uh, implies uh, 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 abuse. 1 Timothy. That's in the New Testament, isn't it? 1 Timothy. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'd like to start with verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers. That word that's translated kidnappers may refer to kidnapping, but it also means men-stealers, implying these are people who involved, were involved in slave-dealing. That would be wrong. It's looked upon as something that's wrong. I'm not going to take time to look at it, but in Revelation chapter 18, where he talks about the prosperity of the, the Babylon in Revelation 18, he talks about all kinds of luxurious items. And it's climaxed by those who buy and sell men's bodies and lives. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't condemn it there, but it's clearly looking at slave dealers. So that slavery is wrong when it's totally abused. That's the problem, is the abuse of slavery. It may be even looking at uh, situations like in West Africa where Africans took their own people, kidnapped them, 
and sold them to slave dealers who were malicious and totally abused these poor people as they came across the Atlantic. And on the American side again, they far, far too often were abused. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Now, it's interesting. The character of a person in the Old Testament was seen in the way he treated animals. Turn very quickly, very quickly, to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. I'll find it very quickly, if I may. Proverbs 12, verse 10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Very interesting. You can tell a person's character by the way he treats his animals. You have much the same thing in Exodus chapter 23. In Exodus chapter 23, you have the case of a, of a man who finds his, um, his uh, enemy's uh, beast burdened down, fallen. You are to help that beast. Now, if a person is to treat beasts carefully and that way, certainly you treat a fellow human being that way. It's not the, I know this is very, very debatable, but it's not the institution. It's the abuse of the institution. Now, I'm going to say something that may be very um, controversial and may make some of you angry. But very frankly, today, there are some people that would be better off as slaves than they are today. They'd have clothing. They'd have food. They'd have shelter. And with the right person, they'd have love. That's why that one slave would say, oh, I love you. I love my family. I want to be a slave forever. What an illustration of our relationship to Christ. We love Christ, and we become his slaves forever. Now, that can't be abused because God loves us so much. But what I'm saying is make a distinction between an institution and the abuse of the institution. So I would say that slavery per se is not wrong. But what we have seen in human culture is terrible, terrible abuse. Those poor slaves in the Civil War days, and even after the Civil War, were put in houses that were veritable hovels. Some of us would not keep our animals in where those poor people lived. The abuse, the abuse, the abuse of slavery. That's because of our sin natures. That's the problem. All right, dear people, with that in view, let's go to our lesson as we see it in Colossians. Remember, we're in Roman numeral three. Duty, the practice of the Christian life, in personal life, in household life, and page two, in daily life. Here's what we're supposed to be doing as God's children in today's culture. So let's start with the first one. Watching in prayer, chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote yourselves to prayer. Very, very interesting. It means you go after it and you don't give up, you don't give up, you keep at it, you keep at it. 
It's used in Acts 2.42 about the early church. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, which is further defined as uh, praying and breaking bread together. But they devoted themselves to it. It was day after day after day. They just gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship. A kind of a sad humor about what this word means is found in Romans chapter 13. I'd like to have you turn back to Romans 13. This is almost humorous, but it's tragic. Romans chapter 13. As you know, Romans 13 is talking about our relationship to the government. And we read Romans 13. I'm in verse 6. Romans 13, 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Same verb. We are to devote ourselves to prayer like a tax collector does devote himself to collecting taxes. Have you found anybody as relentless as a tax collector? The IRS does not give up. They go after you and after you and after you. They just send letters. They send people that they just don't give up. Now, that's what we're supposed to be doing with prayer. Devote yourself to prayer like a tax collector to collecting taxes. In fact, let's go back to Colossians and see what it says. In Colossians, I can't get my marker here. In Colossians chapter 3, chapter 4. Devote yourselves to prayer. Now, before we had our study in Colossians, we had a rather extended study, series of studies, on, uh, on prayer. And remember, the first one was on a definition of prayer. What is prayer? The word that's used here is the common word for prayer. And we came to the conclusion that prayer is not thanksgiving. Prayer is not adoration. Prayer is not confession. As it's often says in Acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's none of those other things. It simply means to ask God for something. And we came to that conclusion on the basis of two things. The Lord's Prayer. Pray like this. When you go through the Lord's Prayer, it's nothing more than six requests. Make your name to be hallowed. Make your kingdom to come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not to temptation. Amen. Even the sentence, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, that's not in the best Greek manuscripts. The Roman Catholics don't have that, and they're correct. It's just ask, 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 ask. The second thing that led us to that conclusion was a study of the words for prayer. We looked at seven different words for prayer in the New Testament, and every one basically means to ask. What is prayer? is asking God for something. Now, that sounds terribly selfish. But James warns against that in James chapter 4. You don't receive because you ask amiss that you may consume it on your own lusts. In fact, in John 14, 13, the Lord Jesus says that whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified. Ask, and when God answers, there's a great revelation of who He is. I can still remember when we came to this point, we just had popcorn. What, what I asked the question, 
What you learn about God in answered prayer? Oh, His grace, His mercy, His wisdom, His power. There's thing after thing after thing that is revealed about God in prayer. So we are to ask and ask, ultimately, that God may be glorified. So devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert. You know what it means? Staying awake. <laughs> uh, many people have fallen asleep while they're praying. Keeping alert. It means stay awake. Um, I find that when I pray silently, my mind is all over the place. My mind is like a wild stallion. I can't hitch it up to the hitching post. It's just all over. I find that it's far better to pray orally. Um, when you pray orally, you're thinking about what you're saying. Now, you may want to go to some private room where nobody else is going to hear you, and then just softly pray orally that you may concentrate. That's what it basically means, that you may be alert, you may concentrate on the prayers. So think about what you're praying about. Dwell on it. So devote yourselves to prayer, being alert with thanksgiving. Now, the thanksgiving is not the prayer. But you are to have thanksgiving with your prayers. Paul says that in Philippians. Let your requests be made known with thanksgiving. In fact, I, I always, I don't know why this is just a pattern. Whenever I pray, I start out with thanksgiving. I praise God for who he is and what he's done. But I always start with thanksgiving. Remember thanksgiving in your prayers. Well, let's move on now. What are the requests? Well, verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open to us a door for the word, that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which also I have been imprisoned. Now, here's the prayer request. Pray for us. Notice the plural. Where is Paul? He's under house arrest in Rome. I would think he'd say, pray for me, no, for us. He's thinking of the people who are with him are about to be discussed in the next paragraph. Um, Onesimus and so on. Pray for us, Epiphras, pray for us. So don't pray just for yourselves. Paul says, pray for us. You know what else I think he's be saying? Pray for me that I might get out of bondage, that I may be set free. But no, look what he says. Pray for us that God may open to us a door. That means open up opportunities, that we may have opportunities and buy them up. Open up, door to us, open up to us a door for the word. Now, interestingly, we who are graduates of Dallas Seminary, as soon as we see the word word, we think, we, we think of the Bible, the word. But as we've said before, when you see the word, it more probably looks at the gospel. Dallas Seminary's uh, motto is, preach the word. And by that they mean exposit the scriptures. But that's not really what it says. 1 Timothy 4, 2, K. Ruxan, Tan Lagan, herald the gospel. Give the gospel out. Herald the gospel. Our motto should be much more in the line of, of, of Ezra chapter 7, right around verse 11 or 10 where Ezra gave himself to study the word, to study the scriptures, the law, and to obey it, and to teach others. Boy, that's the pattern. 
You study it, you live it out, and then you proclaim it. That's the motto. But here he's talking about the gospel. That, the, that opportunities may be given, that we may, may be opened us for giving out the gospel. Now he moves on to, to much more. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Ah, that's on one aspect of the gospel. The word mystery, as we've seen before, doesn't mean something that's spooky, difficult to understand. It simply means a new truth that has not been revealed before. And there's more than one mystery in the New Testament. The one that Paul is talking about here is the equality of Jew and Gentile in the gospel. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be blessed, you had to become a Jew. You were circumcised, you put yourself under the law of Moses, but that's not true here. In the New Testament, Jews and Gentiles are equal. Galatians 3.28, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male and free male, but you're all one in Christ. So that there is this equality of the gospel in, in Christ. You don't have to become a Jew. Just trust in Christ. You're saved. That's why Acts 15 is so crucial. It's the Jerusalem Council. And they came to the conclusion you did not have to become a Jew to be saved. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here, the mystery of Christ. Now, look what he says. For which also I have been imprisoned. By the way, that word imprisoned is not a good translation. Paul is not in prison. I often hear people say, Paul was in this dang, dark dungeon. No, he wasn't. In Acts 28, he was in his own hired quarters, something that he rented where he lived. He was not in a dungeon. So I'm sorry they translated this as in prison because you think of a prison. It literally says in the Greek, for which I've been put in bonds, for which I'm in bondage. Why was he put in bondage? Not because of the Roman Empire. Not because the Romans were opposed to him. Because the Jews could not tolerate Paul teaching that you did not have to become a Jew. You did not have to put yourself under the law. That was just totally obnoxious to the Jews. And so they imprisoned Paul. That's why Paul was put in prison because of a false accusation made while he was in Jerusalem that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. And that led to the whole thing where he's in bondage for so many years and ultimately was in Rome. So he says he's in, he's, he's in bondage because of the mystery of Christ. But he says, pray that an open door may be given. Now he says much more, verse 4 yet. In order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He says that I may be obvious that I may make the gospel clear. Now, some say this is talking about um, what Paul should say before the, before his, in, in his trial, what he should say before the judges. I don't think so. I think he's talking about just opportunity to preach the gospel. He may make the gospel clear. Ladies and gentlemen, keep the gospel clear. Don't make it difficult. Don't make it hard. Make it simple. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So in daily life, the first responsibility is watching in prayer. Secondly, walking in wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Walk in wisdom toward those who are without Christ. Now, what does that mean? You walk wisely 
so you do not become a stumbling block to those who are without Christ. Walk wisely. Don't be obnoxious. Don't be holier than thou. Don't be judgmental. Walk in wisdom towards those without Christ. When we worked with young people so many years ago, we used this as a rule for doubtful things. How do you discern what's right and wrong? You ask yourself the question, will this help win a person to Christ? Will it help to win a person to Christ? Ask yourself that whenever you come into contact with lost people. Will this help? Now, there's a second question. Walking in wisdom towards those who are without Christ, ask yourself the question, who is influencing whom? You're living with lost people. Some of these people have strong personalities. Some of these people are brilliant. Some of these people have arguments that you can't answer. So if that person starts to influence you away from Christ, knock it off. You must ask yourself the question, who is influencing whom? But Paul's main point is, ask yourself the question, how can I use this opportunity for sharing the gospel? We know that because of what he says. Making the most of the opportunity. It literally says, buying up the time. I must hurry here. In Greek, there are two words for time. One is the word chronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S, chronos. The watch that I'm wearing is a chronograph. It measures length of time. The other is kind of time, kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Some of us who are older remember very clearly the days of the Depression. And we say, oh, those were hard times. After World War II, oh, those were good times. There's a spirit of euphoria. It looks at kind of time. So it's proper to translate this here as opportunity. Buy up the opportunities. Many times I will begin the day by saying, Lord, thank you for this day. And thank you for the opportunities that are in it. Give us the wisdom and the grace, the strength and the power to buy up these opportunities. So often it just whizzes past our eyes and our ears and our mouths. And we say nothing. Buy up the opportunity. Walk in wisdom. Then thirdly, witnessing in word. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Let your speech be always with grace. In the Greek language, that had the idea of being attractive, pleasant, gracious. Don't be among those who are constantly negative. This is horrible, how bad things are, and just be negative and critical and fault-finding. Don't do that. Let your speech be gracious, attractive. But it also may have the idea of speaking grace. It literally says, in grace, with grace. Speak grace. In other words, talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that because he says at the end, so that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Well, how do you do that? Seasoned with salt. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what that means. Some say that um, salt preserves, preserves food, salt fish, salt pork, and so on. So likewise, you speak words that will endure. Let your words be that. In the Greek culture, 
salty words, and to, to us salty words are not nice, they're like sailors talk, but salty words had the idea of being witty, wise. And I think that's what you have here. Let your speech be with grace, speaking wisely, so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. That's the point. Speak wisely so that you can talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ wisely. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15 that you ought to be able to answer every man to, to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Graciously and kindly, of course, but have a reason to answer. So likewise, speak wisely. Now let me bring this to a rapid conclusion. What does this mean to us? Did you notice that in all three contexts here, watching in prayer, walking in wisdom, witnessing in word, all three deal with the gospel. There needs to be in our walk and talk an emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I said make it simple, make it simple. You must know the gospel. And I find that there are all kinds of perversions of the gospel. The gospel always revolves around two things. Who Christ is and what did he do? That's Romans 10, 9 and 10. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now that doesn't mean you tell somebody else that Jesus is Lord. The word confess was used as it is in Philippians 2.15, confessing to God. You acknowledge before the Lord that Jesus is Jehovah. You must recognize who Christ is. And then the second part is, you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the work of Christ. The resurrection of Christ was God's confirmation that what Christ did on the cross satisfied him. The debt is paid. Your sins are paid for in full. That's the person and work of Christ. And then you must know the response. It is simple faith to trust in Christ. I've said it before, but it bears repetition. Faith always involves three things. Information. You cannot believe something you don't know about. Romans, again, Romans 10. How should I believe? Romans, yes, Romans, Romans 9. No, Romans 10. How should they believe in him of whom they, not, they have not heard? You can't believe something you don't know about. You have to have the information. And the information is Christ is Jesus, God-man. Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. And all you must do is to trust in Christ to be saved. That's the information. Second, there must be mental assent. Yeah, I agree with that. That's not salvation. James chapter 2, the demons believe God is one. They have mental assent, but they're still not saved. There must be, thirdly, just a commitment to Christ. I cannot save my own soul. I'm trusting in you to save me. I welcome you into my life. Now that's how to be saved. Christ died on the cross. He's God-man, God-satisfied. All I need to do is to believe. Yes, I agree. Now do it. Do it. Do it. Now, all of us can share the gospel. I constantly can carry around in my pocket, uh, may I ask you a question that's, that's written by Larry Moyer, our own Larry Moyer. I don't know the gospel presentation any better than this little booklet. 
I've given out hundreds of these. And any one of us can do that. Anyone. You know, I've never had anybody turn me down. I've never had anybody become angry with me. The acceptance. Now, some people, I'm sure, don't read it. But all we're supposed to do is to sow. We don't have to reap. God does the reaping. We're just sow the seed. And by and large, most people today have no idea what the gospel is. And this little booklet makes it clear. And they're always available in the back. They're free. They're free. If you want these by yourself, you have to buy them. And Marathon Class makes it free. So use these and hand them out. Be, make an emphasis on the gospel in our lives. Now, if you've never trusted in Christ, I pray, God, that you will do that right this morning, this morning, this moment. All you need to do is to bow your heart right in your chair. Bow your heart. And simply say, I recognize I'm a sinner. I cannot say myself. And Lord Jesus, I entrust you to save me. I welcome you to my life. Father God, we thank you for this very simple passage, but very powerful. Impress us with the necessity of giving out the gospel. Otherwise, how will people be saved? Impress this on me. Impress this on each one of us. Watch over us this week. Bless yourself, especially in the concert that is to follow, and glorify yourself in that. And then for those who just now prayed, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting you. Give them the grace to give a clear testimony of that. We commit our way to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.